Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the Word of God that doesn't return void. We thank you, Lord, for so many different people in the body of Christ that do different things. Some that have written music years ago, some that are writing music still today after years, some that are just getting started in a music ministry, some who are digging up artifacts on the other side of the world, some who are teaching Bible studies, some who are serving in the children's ministry. All of us together make the body of Christ. No one is more important than anyone else. We're little people that serve a great God, and we're thankful for that. We pray that in our time together tonight, you'd encourage us and you'd teach us as we study and as we read, as we consider and as we apply these truths to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a Christian lady who lived next door to an atheist. And uh, she prayed about everything and she prayed often out loud about things so that the atheist who, again, lived next door to the Christian lady could hear her pray in the summer when their windows were open. And he, of course, thought this was crazy and there is no God. Why does she carry on? It's not going to do her any good. And one evening, this atheist heard the Christian lady praying for groceries because she had run out. And she said, Lord, I trust you. You can do anything. And I know that you're going to provide my every need. And she just listed the groceries that she needed and said in Jesus' name. And the atheist overheard this and he thought, I'm going to fix her. He went out and bought all of the groceries that she mentioned in her prayer list put him in bags, knocked on the door, and then hid behind a bush. That lady opened the door, saw the grocery, said, Praise the Lord! I knew He would provide! The atheist jumps out of the bushes and he goes, You crazy Christian lady! God didn't get you those groceries. I bought them for you, you nut! When she heard that, she got even more excited, jumped up in the air, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He didn't get it. He said, I don't get this. How come you're so excited? She smiled and she said, I knew God was going to provide the groceries. I just didn't know He was going to make the devil pay for it. (laughs) I like the way she thinks. Well, that could be a little tagline for how everything's going to shake out eventually in eternity. In the end, God is going to get the glory and the devil's going to pay. Until then, that same devil seems to have quite a bit of freedom. You might say he's on a leash. We wonder why the leash is so long. And we are caught in the crossfire of the activity between heaven and and hell. The Gallup organization noted that 70% of Americans believe in hell and believe in a devil, but only half believe the devil's a literal being. The other half say he's imaginary, a figment of one's imagination, or simply an analogy of evil, a metaphor of evil. But then we turn to the scriptures and we see how Jesus spoke about the devil and we get 
something very different from Gallup's findings of what Americans' opinions are. Jesus seemed to speak of the devil as a literal being. In Luke chapter 10, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was there when it happened. In Luke chapter 22, to Peter, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, I wouldn't want to hear those words, especially from Jesus. Yeah, Satan's been coming around lately, talking to me about you. Whoa. What'd you tell him? And then Jesus says, but Peter, I've prayed for you. Now we touched a little bit on that last week and the week before about some of the people that came to Jesus, those who were demonized and how Jesus dealt with them and what that meant and the idea of possession versus oppression. But we didn't quite finish the chapter last week. So we're going to pick it up at verse 23. And again, I believe it's speaking of spiritual warfare. You've heard of Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, in his kind of simple country style, said, I believe in the devil, and I believe in him for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible says he's real. Number two, because I've done business with him. And if you've ever done business with him, there's no question in your mind that he's out to try to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I think we make a couple of mistakes when it comes to Satan. Even as Christians, we sometimes make this mistake, and that is almost a denial of his activity. We forget that we're in a spiritual battle. We become so cloistered in our Christian camp and our Christian activities that we forget the very real battle between spiritual forces that is taking place. And I think that that is what, on one hand, Satan would want. He would want you to deny. He would want you to forget. He would want you to fall asleep. Somebody once said, the devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping saint. Wake up. Don't sleep. You're in a very real battle. The outcome has already been determined. You win in the end. But in the meantime, there could be a lot of collateral damage. A second mistake Christians sometimes make is to obsess over the devil. Being over-interested, an unhealthy preoccupation with him. Getting so superstitious that everything and anything is a demonic attack. And some even go hunting for demons. I've got a ministry of deliverance. What do you do? I go around the country and I look for demons. Well, you don't have to look very far. So be careful that you don't fall into any one of those two extremes. The devil is real. Jesus speaks about him. The Bible underscores and defines and describes his activity. But you don't need to have an unhealthy preoccupation I remember this superstition being played out in a church I was a part of many years ago. Before I was married, before I moved here, I lived in California. I was involved in a church in Carson, California. And um, 
It was after a service. I was teaching the youth group at that time because I was like in the youth group at that time. And um, these kids came to me afterwards and said, you got to talk to our friend. He's demon-possessed. I said, well, how do you know that? He goes, he said he is. I said, okay. So I went over to him. He was acting really strange and trying to like froth and everything else. And what's weird is I saw him come forward at an altar call recently, and I knew that he had made a fresh commitment to Christ. And uh, yet he had this fascination with all things demon. And I think he was trying to spook these girls that were with him. I don't know why, but he did a good job of it. And he was trying to spook me and he started contorting his face. And I said, stop it right now. And he stopped. And I said, you are not demon possessed. And he looked at me and he said, really? (laughs) And it was like enough to shake him out of a superstitious stupor that he was in. I knew that he had given his life to Christ. Could he be oppressed? Yes. Could he be possessed? Absolutely not. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was living inside of him. His body is the temple of the Spirit. God doesn't share the apartment with the demon. True story, 1999, a newspaper in Scotland reported a Catholic priest from France being arrested for speeding. That was what the article said. What was strange about the article is why he was arrested for speeding. When the police pulled over the priest, the priest said, I was driving responsibly, officer, but some force took control of my car. And he said, it became demon-possessed. And it went faster than I wanted it to. Well, it didn't convince the officer. The priest got a ticket. I don't think the demon got a ticket, but the priest got a ticket. Now, we enter into, as I mentioned, verse 43, where Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. So it seems that if Jesus is indeed speaking of a demon, that this demon likes friends. He has a gang. Even demons like fellowship. Okay, there's a couple of ways to look at this, and they have been looked at by most mainline commentators. That number one, Jesus is speaking of actual demon possession. That a man whose body is represented by the house, just like Jesus talked about going into a house and binding the strong man in last week's study, that the body becomes the house. The house has been vacated because the demon has been exorcised. This man has been delivered of the demon. So his condition immediately improves. But in that improved state, the vacuum isn't filled. The spirit isn't replaced with God. And because of that, he brings seven other spirits or demons to inhabit this house. And the last state is worse than the first. So... The application could be that social reformation is certainly not enough, but spiritual regeneration is the ticket. 
It's more than just, I'm going to give this up, I'm going to turn from that. There's all these bad demons, so to speak, that have been bugging me, but I'm going to push those out of my life and get my life on target. I'm going to improve. What a person really needs, especially this person, if indeed a demon has been exorcised from him, is the presence of God in his life. And it's the presence of God living in this house, in this body, that is the ticket that will be the deterrent to any other spirit in the future. That's one way it's interpreted. But there is another way to look at it. That Jesus is speaking a parable to the generation. Notice it says, So it shall be also with this wicked generation, genos, which could also be translated, not just generation, but race. And some believe that this is actually a parable that Jesus is giving of the Jewish nation. That John the Baptist came preaching repentance. Turn from this, turn from that, cease doing that. And he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, predicting the coming Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not everybody that followed or listened to John the Baptist embraced Jesus Christ. So, so it will be with this generation. This interpretation goes like this. 19, well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. And He came to the Jewish nation what he called the house of Israel. Remember, he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel at first to the house of Israel, that he came to the house of Israel. But the house of Israel rejected him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. And because they rejected him, there is going to be further deception that comes along with that. How? In the future. It talks about seven spirits. Seven is, in the Bible, often used as a number of completion. Seven days in a week, seven notes on a scale, etc. So it's speaking about idolatry fully developed. Now that's interesting because when we get to the future writings, Matthew 24, book of Daniel, Revelation, there's something called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. That this world leader in the future that we dub the Antichrist is going to set up an image in Jerusalem and command the world to worship him. And it's that abomination of desolation that is set up that defiles the temple. But many Jewish people, as well as the rest of the world, will follow hard after that. And perhaps this is even indicated in the words of Jesus himself who said, I came in my Father's name and you did not receive me. Another will come in his own name, him you will receive. That's the thought. And you can choose which one you choose to look at, one or the other or all of the above. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside Seeking to speak with him. Now, we're not told why they were seeking to speak with him or what they wanted to talk about. If you compare some of the other gospel accounts, at least on one account, they thought Jesus was crazy. Beside himself is the word that is used in my version. Because he wasn't eating much, wasn't taking care of himself much, was always on the go. So they thought he was nuts. 
Now, we know that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. So it could be that they said, Mom, come on, we got to go rescue Yeshua. He's just crazy. That I understand. I got some of that from my parents and my brothers. Skip has flipped his lid. He's always quoting the Bible. He's always saying, praise the Lord. This guy's nuts. We don't know why they're there, but they're there. And then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and he said to the one who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Wow, that doesn't sound like Jesus is pushing Mary worship all that much now, does it? Your mother's here. Who's she? What? Who are my mother? Who is my, who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We notice that Joseph is not there with Mary and the boys. Why is that? We're not told. Probably, my guess, is he has already died by this time. He could still be in Nazareth working at the shop, not wanting to leave work for this little journey or errand they're on. We don't know. But probably he has died by this time. Now this teaches us, this little cameo of the family of Jesus coming around teaches us a couple of lessons. Number one, there's no such thing as the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. I grew up hearing that, thus believing that. I was shocked, honestly, when I came to faith. When I was saved and I started reading what the Bible says, and I found out that Jesus had siblings Those would be half-brothers that are mentioned. That after Jesus was born, as a virgin birth from Mary, not because of the union of Mary and Joseph, but the virgin-born Son of God, once He was born, Joseph and Mary had normal physical relationships. The Bible says Mary didn't touch Joseph, and Joseph didn't touch Mary physically until after Jesus was born. After Jesus was born, they were a married couple. And they raised a family and had children between themselves. So these would be half-brothers of Jesus. So forget the perpetual virginity. It's not even important. It was made up. And you can trace when it was introduced as a false doctrine into Christian belief. The second thing, and, and even more important than that, is the emphasis on a spiritual family, even over and above a physical family. Now, Jesus is not dissing or denouncing your physical family. He is simply saying that a spiritual bond is often deeper, more significant, and more important than a filial bond, than a family bond. I found that to be true. I loved my mother and my father and my brothers, the two that are alive. Still have a relationship. It's, it's, it's a good relationship. Love them. But I also noticed when I became a believer and was attached to Christian brothers and sisters that there was a depth of experience and bond 
that nothing that I had ever experienced, even as a family member of commitment uh, or of, of, of as brother and sister or brother and father, brother, uh, mother, could ever come close to. Now, it's even cooler when your brothers and your mother are believers. Because then they're physically and spiritually united, and that's an unshakable bond. But Jesus is emphasizing the spiritual over the physical. Okay, now we do get into chapter 13. And again, um, my intention last week was to finish chapter 12. I thought, there's no way, there's no way I'm not going to finish it. It's easy. I'm going to nail it all. But I've had many such nights of good intentions that I've fallen short of. But now we're in chapter 13. Now you can see it's a long chapter. Let me, let me prophesy right now. I'm not going to finish chapter 13 tonight. That's for the record. Chapter 13 is a section known as the kingdom parables. The kingdom parables. There are seven of them altogether. One of Jesus' favorite subjects was to talk about the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount, Behold the Kingdom of God, he spoke about the ethics, the ethos, the standards of the kingdom. Matthew 24, the future of the kingdom. Loved speaking about the kingdom. When Jesus rose from the dead, you know what he talked about? The kingdom. Acts chapter 1. He showed himself alive with many infallible proofs and spoke pertaining the things of the kingdom of God for 40 days with his disciples. He just wanted to talk about the kingdom. That's why he had come. He was the king. He was setting up the kingship in his, in people's hearts and lives right now, but speaking of the future when he will come and set things straight. And there will be a literal kingdom, I believe, a millennial kingdom for a thousand years upon the earth. 48 times in the New Testament is the word parable or parables, either singular or plural, that are mentioned. It comes from the Greek parabole, and it means to place or to cast alongside of. To place or cast alongside of. So what Jesus does, or what rabbis would do, is cast alongside of something that was unknown, something that was known. Or to take something physical and lay it alongside something spiritual, so that in understanding the physical and making application to the spiritual, placing one thing alongside of the other, it makes sense. So look at it this way. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. An earthly example that has a heavenly meaning. And as I mentioned, it's 48 times the word is mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus loved to teach in parables. One-third of all of the teaching that we have recorded is Jesus speaking in story form. The rabbis loved to speak in these kind of stories. In fact, in the ancient world, storytelling and orality were huge. When you have communities that were illiterate, it was all about the story. You tell the story, you give the history, you give the genealogy, and you tell God's story. And how the family fits into that from generation to generation. And people would sit around in the evenings. This is way before television, way before iPads or iPhones or any kind of modern technology and entertainment. The entertainment, the ancient TV, 
was the story. And the better the storyteller, the longer a person will lock on and not change the channel. And Jesus was a master at it. And so to take an earthly story and cast it alongside or place it alongside of something that has heavenly meaning is the whole idea of these things. And they're powerful. You remember in the Old Testament how David sinned with Bathsheba? And he thought he had gotten away with it until the day Nathan came and told him a parable. Hey, David, I want to tell you a story. Oh, cool, I like stories. Well, good. There was a rich man. He had lots of flocks and herds and sheep. There was one poor guy who had a single little female lamb that was like a pet, like a daughter to him. He'd cuddle it in his bosom and take it home at night. The kids loved it. The family pet, and he just took a liking to it. It was the only one he had. The rich man had a friend coming into town, and rather than taking one of his many sheep, he took that one poor man's little pet, slaughtered it, and they ate it. David heard that. He became so angry. That story got to him. The storyline, man, he didn't change the channel. He's locked in. David says, okay, find the guy who got that little lamb and kill him. Nathan said, you are the man. And he used the parable, the story, cast alongside of something David had done in sinning with another man's wife and pointed God's finger at him in a very powerful way. So, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house. I love that for some reason. That Jesus was in a house. He liked home Bible studies. The house was always packed. Inside and outside, in the courtyard, around the house, leaning in the windows. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea. I love that about Jesus. Who wouldn't want to go out of the house and sit by the sea? But he had a problem. When he went outside and sat by the sea, people said, Hey, Jesus just left the house. He's sitting by the sea. Look at the next verse. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and he sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Oh, let's let's maybe try that sometime, shall we? Um, I'll sit and you stand during the whole Bible study. That was an ancient method. No, on a practical note, Jesus was practical. He's sitting by the sea. There's a lot of people. They want to hear from him. Some of them maybe want to just see something that he would do, a miracle. So the best way to manage the crowd, because you're confined at a seashore, and if you turn around, there's still people right there, right on you. So using sort of the natural amphitheater that a shore would provide, and wanting to get a little bit of a distance, he just sat in a boat, pushed it out just a little bit so we could have a commanding view of the crowd that had gathered. And he taught them. And he spoke many things to them, verse 3, in parabole, in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, that is the path, and birds came. And devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. 
and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The parable that we just read, as I see it, is the key to all of the rest of the kingdom parables. I tell you that because in Luke's gospel, when the same parable is given and the disciples are asking about it, Jesus said, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand, or how will the, then will you understand all parables? If you don't understand this parable that I'm giving of the sower and the seed, how are you going to understand all of the rest of them? As if to say, you can't understand the rest of them until you understand this one. And if you understand this one, you'll understand the rest of them. There are certain key elements that are in this story that help unlock the meaning here as well as other parables. Here's an example. We have, first of all, the seed as the first key element. We know what the seed is. Luke's gospel said, Jesus speaking said, the seed is the word of God. So you don't have to guess. A sower sowing seed. What is the seed? That's truth, man. That's the gospel. That's the word of God. That's the seed. Why would Jesus compare a seed to the word? Because both of them have life in themselves. Both are small, but very powerful. It's amazing how a single seed eventually can grow into something that takes cement, a cement foundation or a sidewalk, and sever it, crack it, burst it, and shove it up several inches so that if you're walking on that sidewalk in the dusk and you don't notice it, you'll trip. That's power. Both of them, when dropped into something, produce life. You, produce, you drop a seed in the ground, it has the capability of producing life. You drop the Word of God into a heart, into a life, it can produce spiritual life. So the seed is the Word. The second key element is the sower. The sower is the one who throws the seed. The one who dispenses the truth. The one who tells you the Word of God. There was some person in your life who was the sower. Someone who cared enough to open his or her mouth and share the truth with you. Might have been a lunch conversation. Could have been a relative who just said, i got to talk to you about heavenly things. Might have been a sermon. Could have been a tract or a book or a television program or a radio program. But someone played the role of the sower in your life. Now, here's what I want to piggyback on to tell you. They did it. It's your turn. The seed is germinated. It's taken root. There's fruit. Cool. Pass it along. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treatise that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all, here it is, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. What Jesus began, Luke writes, the apostles in this book that I'm going to write, kept doing. What Jesus did, 
you can do. So it's your turn. The baton has been passed. You become the sower. The third element is the soil. The soil is the heart that receives the truth. And there are four different kinds of hearts that listen to Bible studies like this. All of you right now have one of these four hearts. All of you are represented in this parable, as am I. The soil is the heart that receives the truth of the Word of God. Soil has potential. But not if you leave it to itself. You have to tend the soil. There are things that come up about this time of the year and into the summer in my yard that I never planted. Do you have them? They're called... Yeah, I didn't plant that thing. And why does that weed grow like that tall? And that shrub that I planted takes like four years and gets like this tall. I don't get this. Soil has potential. But you can't leave it untended. The heart of a man or a woman has enormous potential. But the soil is also to be tended. So we have the seed. We have the sower. We have the soil. Verse 4, he who sowed, or and, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. The wayside is the path between rows of whatever you're planting. It's where the sower would walk, and if you walk on the same dirt over a long period of time, what happens to it? It gets hard. In fact, dirt can get so hard that a seed, if, you, if it falls on that pathway, it won't penetrate the soil. Or it would take very long and lots of other circumstances for that seed to get into the soil. Because if the guy is just walking over it, it's going to get kicked off. It's not going to get irrigated. The soil isn't going to get tilled. It's not going to get enough moisture. It's the wayside. And because it's exposed, the birds can get it. Birds always or typically followed somebody sowing the seed. That was their food. So if you have any seed... Out in the open, the birds were going to come and get it. I was with my family years ago in, in Venice. And there in the piazza are, I don't know how many pigeons. Just. And I'm giving you the sneer because you can say, I'm, like, I'm not like stoked on pigeons. I was thinking of ways to nuke them all as I was looking at them. There's just like, these rats with wings have come. And, and my son got this seed and he'd put it out and they would land on his arm and get it. You throw it on the sidewalk, they'll just, you know, it's like a, a, an act of terror that happens in the piazza. And so he was trying little things like he'd put a seed on his ear and the bird would land on his shoulder and put his little beak in his ear and pick it out. And in different, I thought, you're crazy. The seed was exposed. And so it says, the birds came and devoured them. Now, I'm just going to kind of go through a little bit of this before we get to the explanation. Jesus will give it, but because there's other parables in between and other things in between, let me just tell you what this is. This is the calloused heart. This is the hardened heart. This is the person who won't let truth penetrate. As soon as he or she hears truth, they immediately start marginalizing or rationalizing or thinking it applies to somebody else or this isn't for me. They, they figure out a way to not listen to it, not understand it, not be open to it. This is the calloused heart. 
It's um, the personality that God described in the Old Testament of the children of Israel when he called them stiff-necked. Do you know any hard-hearted people? I do. I have known many hard-hearted people. I was one. Some of you were. And I'm saying that because don't write off hard-hearted people. Oh, they're not going to get saved. Let's go to the next person. Maybe not today. But the Bible calls the Word of God the hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. So there's the seed on top of the ground or the rocks. The Word of God can, with the right skilled blow, break the rocks in pieces so that thing can penetrate and perhaps germinate. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. He had a hard heart. God got a hold of his heart. Think of Saul of Tarsus. Hard heart. God got a hold of his heart. And there are many such examples. The callous heart. Some, verse 5, fell on stony places. And they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. This is the shallow heart. Now allow me to describe a situation that is typical in the Middle East. When you go to the land of Israel, a lot of the passages you read come to life. And one is this. There are rocks everywhere. Everywhere. It amazes people. It's like the whole country is rock. And so those that farm have to deal with the enormous amount of rocks. There's usually shelves of rock underneath, limestone typically. And rocks are removed, and with those rocks they make little walls so that a hillside is terraced. You see it everywhere, especially in Judea. Miles of it terraced. So they're building up the earth, removing the rocks, so that there's a deep enough swath of earth for things to grow in. Sometimes a patch looks like, oh, it's so soft and ready to receive the seed. This is going to grow, and you plant it in there. But just a few inches down is a rock shelf. You don't see it immediately. So because it's shallow, it's going to collect a lot of sun. It's going to have a concentration of nutrients to sustain it at first. There's a quick germination, a fast response. But because it is shallow, the roots can't go down very deep. So it's going to be all top growth, and it won't be able to sustain the elements, like when the sun gets super hot there, because there's not a a network underneath it to sustain it. It's certain death. That's what Jesus is speaking about. This is the shallow heart. This is the person who hears the truth and does respond, and responds sometimes immediately and emotionally and says, yes, they're quick to respond. What's unfortunate is they're quick to respond to just about anything. Any cause they see or hear of or issue, they just, yeah. And it's quick in response, but there's not a true depth, change of heart, real repentance, so there's not lasting growth. This is the shallow heart. I call this the Alka-Seltzer Christian. You go, what, what do you mean? There's a lot of fizz at first, but then they fizzle out eventually. That's the Alka-Seltzer Christian. A lot of top growth, no depth, 
doesn't last. You, you, you have people in your mind that are filling that description even as I speak. And some, verse 7, fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. This is the crowded heart. These are the weeds that grow when you leave the garden untended. They grow naturally. This is the person who is torn between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. They have, um, they have too much of Jesus in them to be satisfied in this world, but they have too much of the world in them to just be satisfied in Jesus. Their heart is crowded. There's other things that are growing that they have tended. And so there's always this conflict that goes on. Years ago when I was living in Huntington Beach, California, my neighbor had a lemon tree, which I was very grateful for because state law said anything over on my side was mine. So all those branches that got over, I owned them. And I would beat that tree. I, it was my California law to take a little two-by-four out there, a broomstick, and I'd hit it, and the lemons would fall down in my yard, and I'd say thank you to my neighbor. And he would beat the other side of the tree with his broomstick, and he would he didn't have to thank me. It was his tree, but he obviously owned them. But I just thought that poor little tree is getting beat up from both sides. <laughs> He's beating them up. I'm beating them up. I'm beating them up. He's beating them up. There's some people that get beat up from both sides, the world and the Spirit of God, convicting them, and the world beats them up, and they're always in this conflict. That's the crowded heart. Last one is the best one. That's the fruitful heart. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, that is sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. This is a receptive heart. The seed, the truth, the message takes root, bears fruit, and continues to grow. This is the man described in Psalm 1. And his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And the fruit that comes because of that life is described here. Now look at the return of investment Jesus mentions in this verse. 10,000% more. That's a hundredfold. 6,000% more. That's 60-fold. 3,000%. That's 30-fold. The typical return of investment of an ancient sower with a field was about eight to one or one to eight. You put in one and you get about eight, eight times that. So this is an enormous return that is possible for the one who is a fruitful heart. Okay, look at the whole parable for a moment. Notice that of all of the hearts into which the word is sown, only... 25% is fruitful. 25% won't hear it all. It's callous, it's hard, don't want to hear it, don't listen to it, whatever. 50% of the growth is minimal, I would even say carnal growth. And only 25% is fruitful. And not all of that fruit is enormous fruit. Some of it is a little bit, 30, and then a little bit more, 60, and then a little bit more, like a lot, 100-fold. And I think that is a picture of how truth works today. Not everybody's going to hear it, first of all. An enormous amount of people will just say no to it. Of the people that hear it, some will get all emotional and all excited, and yes, Jesus, but they won't last persecution or whatever. Other people are just so crowded. They're so busy. they got so many agendas, and God is, well, well, He fits in, and I come to church like every two years, and, you know, whatever. They get crowded. They get busy. 
But there are some. They're wide open. And the word gets planted deep. And the work is profound. And it's life-changing. And it blesses others around them. Now, what does that leave us? Well, there's a passage that comes to mind in Luke chapter 8. Jesus said it this way. Take heed how you hear. You're hearing right now. Some people hear like this. Or like this. There's some people who hear like this. What, ready? Because I, I see it. <laughs> and then there's some people who hear like this. Talking to the person next to them or checking the emails or very distracted, very crowded. All of these hearts are represented here right now. How do you respond to the truth? Take heed how you hear. Hearing truth is dangerous business. Because you can grow from it. The dangerous part is if you listen to it, but you're in the mode of non-response, it further calluses your heart. You get really good at turning it off and marginalizing it. You become a professional listener. That's the danger. So Jesus says, close it out, verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to him and said, "Uh, Why do you speak to them in parables? I love these guys. I don't know what they wanted, a theology course? An exegesis on pneumatology and eschatology? But they just said, "Uh, Why a bunch of stories? Okay, we have a... um, text that we got. And of course, we say this is an interactive Bible study. So uh, we want to throw this up. And this is from a friend of ours who's a, a PhD in Virginia. Oh, some of us know her. Um, is therefore 25% of the people go through the narrow gate? Well, I don't know what the percentage is, Shokat, exactly of how many people go through the narrow gate. But in the parable, we have a few that are fruitful. And Jesus said, even more disparagingly, perhaps, but soberingly, For wide is the gate that enters into destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few find it. Not most, not many, but few find it. So, I don't even know if it's 25%. I don't know what the percentage is. All I know is in that that same wonderful passage in the Sermon on the Mount that you're referring to, Jesus talked also about hearing and doing, hearing and putting into practice, so that when we hear something like we're hearing tonight, Our attitude, our commitment as we walk in is to, I'm going to listen that I might apply. Jesus said, that's a wise person who builds their house on the rock. A person who listens but doesn't do it. They just come in and go, another Bible study, whatever. You know, i got to go on, move on, check out. And they don't put it into practice. They're like the foolish person who builds on the sand. So that's the practical part. But that's a good observation and a great question. So the disciples come to him and ask him, Why do you speak to them in parables? So he answers, and he said to them, Because it has been given to you. You who? You his disciples. You his followers. You his committed ones. You his learners. Mathetes, learners, disciples. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, 
Because seeing they do not see, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. There's two reasons that Jesus gave parables for, and he tells his disciples what they are. It's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So number one, parables were given to reveal the truth in a deeper fashion. Um, Jesus didn't tell stories to confuse the people, but to pique their interest, to motivate them, to make them curious. And just like that little parable that Nathan gave to David that really brought the truth of conviction home to his heart in a deeper way, that's what a, a parable did. It was meant to reveal the truth. So Jesus uses the visible world to help people understand the invisible world. By the way, did you know that one of the reasons God designed the physical world was that people might understand the invisible world? It says in the book of Romans, chapter 1, that since the creation, His invisible attributes have been clearly understood by things that are made so that we can look around the world and even the even even the lowest IQ person can figure out this didn't happen by accident there's too much design built into this system that I can't just say wow it's an amazing fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstance (laughs) no it's not design requires designer So in the very least, you will understand the power of God, Romans said, and concur, conclude that there's a creative mind, a creator behind it. And many brilliant minds have come to that conclusion. So parables become both mirrors and windows. Mirrors to show us ourselves, windows that show us the heart of God. The visible makes plain the invisible. Gives us insight into it. So it's been given to you to know the mysteries, musterion, not something that is you'll never figure out, but something that has once been concealed in the the past, but now is being revealed, and he's making it plain. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But then look at verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, not just for you guys to get a deeper grasp of the truth, but to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, that the prophecy of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6. What's that about? Isaiah chapter 6 is an indictment of the people of Israel that have become spiritually dull, hard of hearing, don't want to listen to spiritual truth, turned off God. And Isaiah is going to speak things that they won't understand as an indictment against them. The same truth then that makes the seeking heart understand makes the hardened heart go, huh? I don't get it. On one hand, it reveals the truth. On the other hand, it conceals the truth. The same truth that awakens one heart 
doesn't penetrate another heart. And it's all about what's behind the motivation of the heart. Some don't want to hear. Some do want to hear. It's like the sun. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Same sun. The same rain that irrigates one field might flood another, depending on the quality of the soil. And so it is with the truth. Hearing they will hear and not understand. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. So look at it this way. Parables are both the words of a master teacher and the sentence of a mighty judge. And the people who went, uh, I have no idea what that means, indicates a condition of the heart. Now, you and I, we read through this and we go, I get it. Well, that makes sense. I get it. It makes sense. The condition of the heart is right. Look at verse 16. Yeah, that's about all we have left. But blessed are your eyes. Don't you love that? Sometimes you'll say to somebody, Oh, you have beautiful eyes. You have pretty eyes. You have nice eyes. I like that color. I like that makeup. Or, Those are nice eyes. <laughs> but to have blessed eyes. Blessed are your eyes. For they see in your ears, you my disciples, they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. I'll just read that. It's Jesus' explanation and we're done. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes down and comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside or the path. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So we finish that just in time. And next week we're going to finish the chapter. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you for truth, Lord. We also understand that truth isn't ink on a page. That first and foremost, truth is a living person. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said to Pilate, I have come to bear witness of the truth. He said, you will know the truth and the truth, it will set you free. Thank you for truth that sets us free. And Lord, I pray our hearts would always remain open, hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I pray that the seed always falling on our hearts would produce something. A fruitful walk, a fruitful life.
Father, we pray for those who may not even know you tonight or might have a sketchy walk or who themselves are sort of on the edge, as it were, like that lemon tree. They're feeling beat up by the world, and yet they're feeling the conviction of your Spirit. I pray that they would move toward you tonight. Graciously responding to your desire to manipulate, to mold. You want to occupy that life. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.